Hello and welcome to Legally Scaling, the podcast for entrepreneurs and tech enthusiasts seeking insights into the common legal challenges faced by scaling businesses. This podcast is brought to you by Ignition Law, a leading law firm for startups, scale-ups and entrepreneurs. Today's podcast is about the key legal considerations to bear in mind when starting a business. By the end of this episode, you can expect to understand the pros and cons of setting up as a limited company. You'll learn about the legal steps that this entails and gain insights into why they're important and how to get them right. And finally, you'll gain an insight into shareholders' agreements and why it's essential to get them in place as early as possible. To discuss all of this, I'm joined by partner Helen Gerrard, Head of Corporate and Corporate Finance at Ignition Law. Before joining Ignition in 2016, Helen worked at City Law Firm Freshfields for many years, both in London and New York. Aside from being a lawyer, Helen is an entrepreneur in her own right. In 2014, she created Snow Drone Transfers, a private transport company with a fleet of 30 vehicles operating across the French Alps. Helen, welcome. Thank you, Jake. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. My first question is, do you have to formally incorporate as a company before starting to run a business? Good question. You don't. And some people set up as you know, self-employed, but there are some benefits to actually incorporating as a company. The first being is that if you set up a limited company, um, it's a, a legal structure in which the liability of the shareholder is limited um, to the value of their individual investment. So um, unlike if you were um, self-employed, um, you essentially would have to contribute your um, personal assets or, or sell your personal assets in order to repay any debts that um, the business acquired, you wouldn't have to do that with a limited company because it is limited within the company. There are also other advantages to setting up a company. For example, it can um, look more prestigious or uh, more professional in the eyes of shareholders. You know, if you think about future investment that you might be looking to get into the company or into the business, then investors coming in will be more comfortable investing in a business rather than um, an individual itself, um, because they can um, assert certain controls around their investment. The other advantage is, as a shareholder in a company, what you can do is um, you could pay yourself a small salary, so you're below the tax threshold for um, for PAYE, for example, and the rest could be taken in dividends, so it can be more tax advantageous. Um, I'm not going to profess to be a tax lawyer, but um, I do know that much. Whereas if you if you do that. Um, as an individual, that there aren't as many tax advantages. And um, there's also things like, you know, if the business ends up generating more than 85K, then you register for VAT and you can, you know, offset VAT, if, you know, if you make any purchases through the business. So, so that's also something um, to think about. Okay, cool. So you've got benefits in terms of company profile, flexibility around uh, the company's management processes, which can help in an investment context. There are potentially some tax benefits. And also if the company were to go bankrupt, you as an individual cannot be held liable for its debts, subject to a few very limited exceptions. So it sounds like there's some really good stuff in there. What are the potential drawbacks of incorporating as a company? I mean, from from an individual's perspective, it can be quite daunting because it can seem quite paper driven or um, time consuming. But actually, you know, the process of incorporation is very, very quick in the UK. So in the UK, you can incorporate um, normally within 24 hours. 
company's house make it very easy in terms of the the information that they require. Um, There are a couple of things which I will come on to later, which um, it's important for founders of a startup to be aware of when incorporating. But um, I think that to me, that's that's the main drawback is, you know, the, the administrative burden. And obviously, once you incorporate a company, then you've got certain filing requirements to do. But actually, you know, the main thing is accounts. But if the company's not doing much at the, at the start, you might be able to get certain exemptions um, from the accounts requirements. You know, also, if you're not doing um, investment rounds immediately, then really, you know, the administrative burden is limited to things like submitting the confirmation statement once a year to update company's house and then any changes in directors or registered office that you might do. But actually, at the start, most people tend to, you know, keep those relatively straightforward. Great. And you mentioned accounts exemptions when talking about initially incorporating as a smaller company. What are the benefits of these? Is it about not having to disclose as much financial information and, and privacy? Yeah, good question. Because I guess that is also a drawback of um, of registering as a company because um, when you register as a company, you have to appear on company's house and your your annual accounts would get published on um, on company's house. So if you are able to use one of the exemptions, and this is something that an accountant would be able to advise on, you wouldn't have to specifically submits um, the accounts to company's house. That being said, it's obviously helpful to have accounts and keep a record of your financial situation. And that that helps for things like, you know, if you ever need to get a short-term bank loan, um, that will be something that your financial advisor at the bank would request. Um, upcoming investment rounds, um, investors are likely to want to see some, you know, business model, business plans, any financial data in respect of the company, because at the end of the day, that's how they make their assessment on on the long-term prospects of the company. Sounds like it can be quite tricky and there are, there are various ways in which people can, can fall foul of some of the rules. So um, it, I guess it can be really helpful to have people to guide you through that process. Exactly. And one of the questions that we're often asked is, you know, how soon should I get lawyers involved or, or any advisor, really? And people are often reluctant to do that at the early stages because they, you know, they, they have limited uh, resources available to pay for lawyers, accountants. You know, I always recommend and I mean, yeah, people might say that I would say this, but actually, you know, it, it is better to get a lawyer involved sooner rather than later. We've had people who have gone ahead and tried to do their filings themselves, tried to um, manage the initial stages themselves. But there is an act to it and there's some nuances that people don't appreciate. Um, And actually, it often takes much more time to unpick um, everything that's been done. Great. And are there any other considerations that that founders should should keep in mind at this stage in their business's lifecycle, other documents and things like that? Yes, definitely. And I think um, I think that's really important because, you know, people go, OK, right, great. I've got I've incorporated. I've got my certificate of incorporation. It's you know, I can see it on the company's house. Fantastic. But there's actually certain requirements that you need to do afterwards. So, um, for example, there's a legal requirement for the company to keep statutory books. And that's basically registers of the directors, the shareholders. Then if there's any transfers of shares, they have to be registered in there. If there's any new shares issued, they have to be noted in there. If you issue loan notes, they also have to be kept in the loan note register. And this is a legal requirement. They have to be kept up to date and um, you can be fined for for not keeping statutory books. You also have to issue share certificates. Um, You have to do that within two months of issuing shares, but normally people do it 
very close to when they've um, issued the shares because otherwise it just gets forgotten about. Other things to consider, um, this is actually a random one, but at your registered office, you have to display your registered name. And um, yeah, that is um, a requirement of any, you know, any place you do business, you have to display um, the company name. There is an exception. If you basically use your, your house um, as your registered office, then you don't need to do that. You don't have to have a massive sign outside your house saying, um, you know, <laughs> my name limited. Um, there's also points to do with registering for VAT if you think you're going to get over the VAT threshold. Company insurance, if, you, um, if you're employing people, then um, it's a legal requirement to, to take insurance. Other things that are important to consider at this stage, a shareholders agreement. So that is in addition to your articles of association and it basically works alongside your articles of association. And it's a private document between the company and its shareholders. Um, and it might give directors additional ability to kind of govern and manage the company, but it also may give shareholders um, additional rights, for example, certain matters that require their consent before the company goes ahead and, and does it. Um, it's also a good way to include sort of confidentiality provisions, um, restrictive covenants, which are non-compete, non-solicitation, and um, also IP assignment rights. Just a couple of other things to um, to think about are, you know, terms and conditions of, um, you know, of the services that you're providing or the products that you're selling, um, and a privacy policy you know, that links into data protection requirements. And um, that was quite a big thing a couple of years ago. It's sort of settled down a little bit now. And then... Just from the director's perspective, so people might think, okay, I'm a director of a company, I can just run the company. But actually, directors have duties to the company, which are um, to act in the company's best interests and promote its success, act within the powers delegated to them by the company's constitution, which is the Articles of Association and um, the Shareholders Agreement, if there is one. They have to exercise independent and unfettered judgment. So they must keep their shareholder hat and their director hat separate. And they have to exercise reasonable care, skill and diligence um, when acting as a director. And they need to avoid um, conflicts of interest. So that means, um, you know, there might be quite a lot of situations where there is a potential conflict, you know, with the shareholder hat and the the founder hat. Or they might be putting in place um, employment contracts or service contracts for that director. So what the director must do is declare any interest and it must be specifically recorded in the board minutes. And then they also must not accept benefits from from third parties. I'm guessing a lot of companies at the start think, oh, I don't need a shareholders agreement. I get on great with my founders or I don't need staff contracts in place. They're expensive to draft or I'll deal with data protection and terms and conditions later on. But, you know, if disputes arise in the future and there are no documents to fall back on, the time and cost involved in trying to resolve these disputes can really escalate. Is that something you've seen um, a fair amount? Yeah, um, actually, very, very recently, a similar thing happened. They, they did actually have a shareholders agreement in place, but they had no um, lever provisions. So lever provisions are where if somebody leaves the company, um, then the company or the other shareholders have the ability to um, take back the shares or at least take back a portion of the shares. Um, normally, if somebody's what we call a bad lever, so that, you know, they go, they're leaving and breaching their non-compete provisions or they've acted fraudulently, dishonestly, etc., then normally the company can take back all of the shares. Um, if somebody's what we call a, a good lever, and that might be, you know, for very sad reasons that, like, you know, unfortunately the, the person dies or um, has some very serious um, illness that means that they can't work, or it might just be simply, you know, 
redundancy. But, you know, those those sorts of situations or the board m- might just agree, you know, amicably that they can leave. Um, then often it's, a, you know, you might not claw back all of it. You might claw back just a portion um, of the shares to kind of take into account, you know, how much time they've already contributed to the company. But without that, if, if you don't have some sp- specific provisions in either the articles or the shareholders agreement, then the company and the, share- the other shareholders cannot take back the shares from from that lever and we've had this situation recently and it just um you know it should have been a very very simple process but actually it ended up being way more than than simple and it just escalated and it ended up costing the parties much more in terms of um, the legal fees involved whereas you know if you thought about it in advance and set out the process then it's much simpler and relatively easy to deal with so it can make a real tangible difference. Well, I think that was a really brilliant checklist of what businesses should have in place and, and why that stuff can be really important. As a business owner myself, I was just waiting for you to say something I hadn't done. I was thinking, oh, I'm going to have to do that as soon as possible. But um, I take some comfort knowing that it was worth the, the time and investment on, on my end, getting that stuff in place. It, yeah, it can help you go to sleep at night knowing that you have these processes in place before something goes wrong. So you know how to deal with something if it does go wrong in the future. Hopefully it won't, but you never know. Um, So to finish up, we've got one final question. Which entrepreneur do you admire and why? Ah, This is a question that I, um, yeah, I don't actually need to think very much about, but it's actually entrepreneurs in my, um, in my case, and that would be my parents. My parents, um, were uh, both pharmacists. Well, they're, they're retired now. Um, I think my, my dad still dabbles a little bit, but they started their own business. Um, they worked for other people. And then um, when I was about four, they bought their first pharmacy and um, yeah, worked very, very hard to grow their business and ended up with a few pharmacies in the north of England, um, North Yorkshire, where I'm originally from, despite the accent. And, and so from a very young age, my um, I'm the oldest out of uh, three. So um, my dad always used to drag me into uh, one of the pharmacies to help on like Christmas Day and Boxing Day when he was doing the cover. So, um, so yeah, he's always been very active in involving me in what was going on with the businesses. And I think I just ended up with a, a natural um, interest, even if it was um, involuntary to start off with. <laughs> but yeah, they, you know, they, they've been very successful in their own right, um, having you know, no help, completely self-made. So um, yeah, something I very much admire. And um, yeah, their, their work ethic has been drilled into me and um, it's the way I operate. So, yeah. So it's no surprise that you've ended up focusing on startups and scale-ups because I guess you've seen the world you're through the eyes of, of entrepreneurs since, uh, since a very young age. Yeah, that's, that's very true. And, um, and although I ended up, you know, I started my career at you know, the likes of Freshfields where um, the clients are not startup scale-ups, um, you know, they're very, very large institutions. You know, I was always very keen to get back to the startup world and and just had a natural interest in it, really. And it's just, it's nice getting to know people and know the individuals and you really build up um, a rapport and they, you know, they, they trust you. Yeah, which, you know, there's, there's a saying, never trust a lawyer, but actually, um, I think in a startup, you have to. And one of my clients um, said to me, um, one of my friends said to me, um, in your life, you have to have two friends, a great doctor and a great lawyer. <laughs> he said, I found a great lawyer. I just need to find a great doctor now. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, that's always stuck with me. 
That's brilliant. And, you know, from my perspective, I've really enjoyed working with such brilliant colleagues who all have that real interest in helping very small businesses grow um, in, in common. It creates a wonderful culture at Ignition as well. So exactly. on that note, Helen, thank you so much for speaking to us today. And, and thanks to everyone who's tuned in to listen. If you're looking for help with setting up a company or the early stages of business growth, then check out our startup packages at ignition.law. We offer support every step of the way. So if you have any questions, don't hesitate to get in touch. Until next time.